0: We hold these truths to be self-evident, or do we? Our guest, Harvard professor Danielle Allen, author of A Reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality. Join host Frank Falvey and our roundtable Harvard Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Higher Education Consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we navigate the unique journey of
1: America toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is Frank on a journey to a more perfect union. Pete, good morning. Good morning. How are you, Frank? I am wonderful. Michael, with the 3D glasses. (laughs) No one would have known that unless
2: you said it, Frank, and I'm doing great. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And Jeff,
3: I don't see you, but you're there, right? Uh, Frank, uh, it's good to be here. Thank you. And uh, glad to join everyone for a great conversation. And Steve Sherlock, how are you? Happy to be here. Good
1: morning to all. And Natalia, we have a special guest this morning.
4: We do, Frank. I am really excited that Harvard University professor um, Danielle Allen has joined us today for this
5: conversation. Thank you so much. It's a treat to be with all of you. Welcome, for...
3: Danielle. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, welcome to Franklin.
5: No, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. So thank you for folding for me in.
1: Danielle, you wrote a wonderful uh, article that we all uh, read in an email. And also, you have a book out called Our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality, um, which the Franklin Public Library got from the Acton Public Library. <laughs> tell tell us a, a little about that writing, if you would mind opening up the conversation?
5: Oh, sure. No, I'd love to. Thank you so much, Frank. I'm a kind of declaration of independence nerd, to tell you the truth. So I think I probably have spent more time reading and thinking about it than anybody else for in recent memory. I've been thinking and writing about it for 20 years at this point. It all started because of a night class I taught for low-income adults when I lived in Chicago. And it was a class that Had the purpose of helping people make their way back to opportunity. They had fallen out of the educational system in one way or another. And our goal was to make sure that they had the same quality of education that the kids I taught during the day at the University of Chicago were getting. Um, Yet these were people who sometimes were working two jobs or juggling massive public transportation issues, childcare issues. So that was the challenge. How do you give them the same quality of education when maybe they don't even have a GED, haven't finished their high school degree, and they're juggling so much? The answer was just really basic utilitarian answer was pick great texts that are really short. The Declaration of Independence is really, really short. In all honesty, that's why we got started teaching it, using it to teach history, to teach philosophy, to teach writing. But then what happened was this amazing thing that I found that my night students, these adults who were changing their lives, connected to the text faster and more powerfully than the students I was used to teaching in the day at the university. Because they got it. They got that the Declaration was a story about people who looked around their world, said, this isn't working for us, (laughs) we need to change direction. And so that just opened the text up for me and gave me this sort of vista into its power for helping us all think about empowerment, helping us all think about democracy and so forth. So it's been a journey for me with the text ever since as I try to carry its message to people.
0: Well, Danielle, one of the things I find interesting is that its very title says it all. Three simple words, Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. and how it is that you then crack open that title, let alone all the rest of the text, You know, starting off with We the People, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just from the title alone, that's a springboard towards a whole bunch of, uh, of exploration in terms of wants and needs in life, where you want to go, etc. And I can see where the students that you were talking about, who were able to wrap around it more quickly, could say, "Yeah, I want some of that. I want to follow that."
5: Yep, exactly. I mean, you can imagine when we read the passage of the grievances about King George, right? Mm. They're in Chicago, thinking about the mayor. It was very easy for people to start producing lists of grievances that pertain to the city of Chicago, but then you can have really deep dive conversations about well, what does freedom mean. What does equality mean? And the main argument I make in the book is that we've been really mistaken for the last few decades to think that freedom and equality are somehow in tension with each other. No, if the goal is freedom for all, (laughs) that actually means we need equality. Equality is the precondition for everybody being free. Um, So the two things need to work together, hand in glove. Um, And that's the argument the declaration makes. Equality is its grounding term. that's the anchor for that project of independence. And I was trying to revive recognition of just how closely the ideal of equality, human dignity, respect for human dignity, how closely that's connected to the Freedom Project. I was going
4: to say, I haven't read the book, Danielle. I apologize. I I will put it on my reading list. But how do you come to terms with the (laughs) structural, sort of the history of like when it was written and how many people were excluded from the vision then? And how how do people, um, or how do you, how do you explain that while also elevating these themes of, of equality?
5: Sure. No, I mean, I think that's so important. There's You're going to have to stop me because there's a lot to say on this subject. Okay, so interrupt me at will, please. Um, but for example, I think I one of my favorite Bostonians is Prince Hall. I don't know how much you all know the history of Prince Hall, free African-American who fought for abolition and He was the first person to use the language of the Declaration of Independence for a reason other than fighting Britain. So in 1777, January 1777, he quotes it in his petition to the Massachusetts Assembly to end enslavement in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts pulls it off by 1783 before the Constitutional Convention. For me, that's the really important point. There's always been more than one political tradition in this country. And the Declaration of Independence does articulate an egalitarian political tradition. Jefferson wasn't the sole author. John Adams, again another local hero, was a really instrumental voice. Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson worked together to shape it. Adams actually wrote something in January 1776, which is a first draft for the Declaration. He was against enslavement. He never held people as slaves. Um, He fought against it. The constitution he drafted supported the move to the end of enslavement in massachusetts ditto franklin franklin was an abolitionist by this point so the idea that there's this monolithic kind of beginning of the country is honestly it's just not accurate abolitionists helped found the country and i'm really trying to bring their story back to the surface and you know like that's the this is like massachusetts pride i mean this is it's a massachusetts story that the whole country should be proud of
2: but isn't that particular struggle though the continuation uh, up to today. I mean, it, you know, that friction that you're describing uh, Danielle between the abolitionists and the Southern slaveholders uh, continues today. And as a matter of fact, Prince Hall, and I'm glad you brought him, is a great example of even the Freemasons uh, in America did not, uh, you know, they weren't all integrationist or abolitionists, which is why black Americans all come under the Prince Hall section of the nation okay while the uh, you you know and so that you know and i'm not even sure to, uh, to uh to today and maybe you can help enlighten us on that issue uh that the masons have totally now accepted or or integrated all of their particular uh divisions of color
5: for sure i mean the prince hall story is about both the possibility and the obstacles and even prince hall you know he works with a coalition of people. They succeed at ending enslavement in Massachusetts. And then by a decade later, they're thinking about trying to move back to Africa because the obstacles are so severe. There's so many sort of limitations on opportunity. Education's not working for African-Americans in Boston at the end of the 18th century. And they start trying to advocate for education issues. So that dynamic absolutely is pertains throughout. And I do remember noticing I worked in an 08 as a regional field officer um, in the Obama primary. And I you know, sort of looking at voting data and patterns all over the country. And I was really struck by the fact that in the Northeast, which was you know, this place where abolition started, um, the African-American turnout rate was lower than in the rest of the country. And that just was, it's, you know, it's sort of the story of both possibility and then obstacles over time. And so we do have a lot of work now to do to provide that, you know, to achieve that full empowerment for everybody.
3: You know, I I, uh, take note that certainly it was an aspirational document and, you know, set a floor for, you know, how we were going to think. But, you know, we've evolved over 240 years and, you know, looking back on that document, it's, you know, it has different meanings at different times and uh, and it's a living, breathing instrument. And for me... Um, I always look to it and think about it, uh, in my role as a government official. And my most important function in government is to provide equality of opportunity, not to mm. do something for people, but to give them the opportunity to help themselves. And that's what, uh, equality is all about. And I'll, I'll share a little trivia because you brought up these names, uh, Franklin happens to be the first community in America to be named after Benjamin Franklin.
5: Oh, that's very and,
3: awesome. And uh, so Benjamin Franklin uh, at uh, uh, donated books to the Franklin Public Library to wow. establish the first public library in America.
5: Very cool. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, that's I'm
3: not pretty... done yet. 12 <laughs> years later, a young man was born in Franklin, Massachusetts. And uh, the education system that we had... Uh, back in uh, you know seventeen ninety six wasn't what it was like today. But that young man went to the Franklin Public Library and used those books to educate himself and to get into Brown University, who I'm talking about is Horace Mann, the father of public oh, wow. education. So a quality oh, wow. of opportunity is ingrained uh, in this community, and we reflect on these uh, older documents frequently. And I'm just thrilled that you uh, wrote a book. On such an important topic, and you and you use it as part of your conversation.
4: Can I ask a question um, to anyone here? I'm. I often struggle with the concept of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcomes. You know, in public health, we see stark inequities in terms of you know black and white um, inequities, maternal mortality rates, or with COVID. And and I think that the outcome is what we should be focusing on, not the opportunity, because the opportunity we can convince ourselves that we've given everybody the same opportunity, but it doesn't necessarily take into account the structures, the history, the legacy. And, and so I think we should be looking at outcomes and then saying these outcomes are not natural. They're not, you know, it's not biology. And therefore um, we have failed because the outcomes. What, what does our either, our, our declaration of independence or what do, you, what do you think about the difference between opportunity I want and to outcomes? jump in
3: and say, I look at the outcomes to determine whether we are in fact, providing the opportunities.
5: Exactly. So, um,
3: you know, I'll share with you that uh, we look at education reform in Massachusetts and the goal of passing education reform in 1994 was to, uh, to close the uh, equality gap because we were seeing that we were not um, providing um, real equality of opportunity. And so we did a massive reform of our education system. The Supreme Judicial Court uh, actually told us, if you don't do it, we will do it. So the legislature did it. We had a remarkable uh, reform effort. But we've seen that um, even though we did that, we really haven't uh, bridged the equality gap. Uh, We're still working on it. Uh, A program that that I'm working on in the legislature right now uh, is college and high school. And that includes the early college concept. And we're seeing that by providing opportunities to underserved uh, students in some of our gateway communities and introducing them to college-level work while they're in high school to show them that they can do college-level work and to expose them to that environment is actually uh, closing the equality gap. And again, so we look at outcomes and we say, how, how good of a job are we doing? How can we tweak it? And uh, I'll be introducing legislation uh, in the next week or so on how we're going to expand that college and high school notion to address, again, equality of opportunity. You know, but
2: I'm going to jump on Natalia's uh, bandwagon, though, Jeff. I think you know, albeit, uh, all of us here understand your sort of academic approach and that you're really looking at outcomes because you want to make sure that the equality provisions that you're trying to legislate, uh, are producing the results. But I'm not sure that our citizens, uh, really cl- truly understand that. I think b- because, Because I think, as Natalia explained, the majority of politicians will pronounce what you just said. That is, you know, we want to make sure that everyone has an equal opportunity. It stops there. They don't talk about, and we're going to hold ourselves accountable at the end of the game uh, to make sure that people are succeeding based upon those opportunities. Uh, And yet, at the same time, the system itself is a hindrance to the, uh, uh, to the whole premise. So I guess, Danielle, you, you know, please jump in and help us to uh, at least address, if not resolve this, I know.
5: <laughs> I, I, mean, I think you're exactly on, on the right track, which is that we have to look at outcomes as a diagnostic. And then once you see a disparity or an inequity, then the job is to figure out what the cause of that is. So equality of opportunity isn't just about saying, oh, OK, now the rules are fair. It's about saying, what are the obstacles? Just as you said, Michael, what systemic effects are blocking people from actually being able to move in this healthy direction or move in a way that supports their thriving? And then you need policy to undo those obstacles, right? So in other words, it's a different way of thinking, I think, about what the policy is that gets us that genuine equality. Um, Again, you're not just enough to change the formal rules. You do have to actually look at the obstacles and undo the obstacles. And I think that sounds like what um, Jeff is talking about, the kind of analysis that he's doing.
3: You know on the, the, the accountability, accountability front, um, much of the legislation that we pass these days includes uh, reporting requirements, data collection, and And that certainly goes to the point of, okay, we're going to do these great and wonderful policies that make a great press release. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure that they're working. And if they're not working, uh, let's tweak them. And, you know, the, the accountability piece um, is called an election. If you don't think we're doing what we suppose that we said we were going to do and we're not doing it well, we'll hear from you at the ballot box. And I can, I can uh, assure you that uh, there are enough uh, agencies and advocacy groups out there that will point out uh, where we may have stumbled but uh, you know i am one that constantly looks at um, is this working and that's important to me uh, because we're not providing true equality of opportunity uh, unless we are looking at it and i will say uh, on the higher ed spectrum which has been my focus for the last two years These are questions we're asking uh, constantly. Uh, You know, are college costs so exorbitant that folks don't have an opportunity to participate in that? And I also look at the statistic that 72% of the jobs in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts require a credential beyond a high school diploma. So we have an obligation under the equality of opportunity mantra mm-hmm. to make sure that we get folks some sort of credential beyond a high school diploma so that they can participate in that economy. I look at those issues and questions every single day uh, of my life, and uh, and I know that the voters hold me accountable to make sure I do that. Danielle, in your,
1: in your preface to your book, uh, you mentioned that Bill Gates, uh, sports people, we are not in some senses all equal. Can you redefine your your premise of what is the definition of equality that we're speaking about?
5: Sure, absolutely. It is really important when a person invokes the term equality to take the time to say, well, what kind are you talking about? Because there are Multiple kinds. So there's basic human moral equality, the idea that we each have a core dignity that deserves respect. There is political equality, which means we all have access to participation and have the ability to influence the decisions our communities are making. There's social equality, which is the question of how we interact with each other. Does somebody always have to defer to somebody else, or can we actually be on an equal footing, look each other in the eye, and speak frankly to one another? There are economic issues, and this is the hardest part, is our goal, economic egalitarianism, economic equality, and so forth. That's one of the biggest fights in America. In the book, I focus on political equality, first and foremost, grounded on that moral human dignity and social equality, those things together. And it's my view, and there's good evidence to support this, that if you achieve those things, you actually also build an egalitarian economy. So that kind of focus on political empowerment helps rebuild a strong middle class, helps build rules of the game um, for our economic system that are fair. um, And that mean that when you have productivity growth and things like that for the broad economy, it is getting distributed um, in a broad way that's inclusive. So for me, it's a combination of moral equality, that basic human dignity that matters so much, political equality, social equality, and the economic egalitarianism that comes from this real commitment to opportunity that jeff was describing opportunity that you're actually paying attention to the outcomes at the same time so i think once upon a time we had a kind of conception of equal opportunity which was just let's make sure the rules say everybody has a chance like that counts as the open door and we neglected the fact that once that door was open there were still folks whom a like big piles of boulders standing between them and the door and you can't just walk through the door if there are these big boulders in the way. So you've got to figure out what those boulders are and remove them. And that's, I think, the, the big job that we all have as a community now.
0: You've touched on an interesting point, Danielle, that I wanted to also explore, and this goes out to uh, the whole group. Um, and I want to talk about what it is that we do to promote agency among individuals. Uh, and of course, agency is what helps you get past the boulders that you're talking about. And so, what does agency, one of, mean? agency is a person's ability to do something. That is, that they are empowered, they have the resources, they have the choice. Uh, and so, agency is an important uh, inner structure of people. Do they believe they have it, for instance, is a, is a core discussion. But that said, you know, one of the phrases that plays well, of course, is equal opportunity. But in terms of addressing the boulders, uh, I think it's also important to have an open discussion about supplemental, complementary, supportive opportunity. Mm -hmm. Complementary opportunity that addresses the fact that the boulders are there and finds a way to nullify those additional impediments to agency.
5: Agreed, agreed. I think that's a profound um, insight. And I do think that, you yeah, know, that conversation about agency just, it couldn't be more important. You know, I think it's great that the Commonwealth introduced um, civic education um, legislation a couple years ago and changed state standards. I think there's a lot of work to do to support that though, to build that out further. Michael, you look like you're going to jump in.
3: Hey, we did a show on that a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we oh, okay. we had a lengthy discussion of uh, civics education bill. So I'm glad you brought that up.
5: Yeah, I'm I curious also... what what was the take, what, what what direction were you guys going on that?
3: Well, uh, some folks didn't think we were doing anything about it, and I uh, I reminded them that we are certainly um, certainly doing something about it. And uh, you know, another um, I'll share another piece of legislation that I'm working on that I think. Uh, is important in that, this context. Uh, I've, I'm on my fourth session uh, filing this particular legislation, and that is to uh, require that genocide be a part of the curriculum for students. Um, and uh, we, have been, we have been able to get the Massachusetts curriculum frameworks to include genocide education as a required subject. It's, but uh, the curriculum but, frameworks only say what should be in there there 's nothing saying that the schools have to do it, so we're we 're taking that nap, next step uh, on that but it's you know it goes to this notion of of civic education what it 's a good to be a good citizen, and what is uh, what is the underlying uh, theme and goal to uh, achieve equality and and Danielle, if I may put a plug in for your next book. Uh, <laughs> It should be on the Massachusetts Constitution, which, which
5: That's a good uh, idea.
3: such yeah. a wonderful job writing and includes so many of these concepts uh, in there and really sets a framework. And I, I mean, it set the framework for the United States Constitution, but I love the Massachusetts yeah. one
5: better. Well, maybe you should write that book.
3: I'll write it with <laughs> you.
5: We, there we go. Absolutely. We should play with that idea.
2: I want to jump in too, and uh, uh, because you're right, my excitement uh, with my good friend Jeff and yeah. and the others on this panel really comes from the fact that I think we've had some really great debates about civic education. Um, and my particular bent is to make sure that the schools are academically uh, teaching appropriate and truth uh, with high integrity, uh, and the academic underpinning and stuff that tells the real story. Now, with that, let me go back, Danielle, though, to something that you expressed, which is this, you know, which is the equality and something that Jeff was also mentioning in terms of equality uh, and of opportunity. Uh, And I really want to throw in how the system is, in many instances, though, Danielle, rigged so that every time a person like Jeff makes a uh, – uh, or comes up with a, uh, a particular piece of legislation that sort of levels the floor, the system reevolves, And then to take that away. Let me give you a prime example of what's happening right now. Joe Biden wins the election. He wins it based upon the empowerment, as you have described, of people, in particular people of color – in particular in places that traditionally don't see that kind of or level of participation. And now the system is trying to reorganize itself to rig itself again against those same people. Look at all of the laws that are being proposed, especially in those red states, to now limit or structurally eliminate those people and their opportunity to, as you had described it, Danielle, all right, Uh, sort of exercise their political power.
5: Yep. Yeah, no, I think this is the issue of the day for our country, in all honesty. Um, I think that we have to say plainly that we are having a fight about whether we are actually committed to universal suffrage. And it's a terrible thing, but in the last period of time, it it is the case that in the Republican Party, there has evolved um, a subset of folks who are, I'm not, I don't think they're still committed to universal suffrage, in all honesty. And so I think we have to to name that, say that's actually what we're fighting over. One of the ways I advocate approaching that is, in fact, to say, it's time to have universal voting, a la Australia. So in Australia, voting is mandatory. Um, That sounds crazy to Americans. I recognize that. It doesn't, you know, it it goes against our sense of, you know, do what you want, so forth, libertarian spirit but think of it like jury duty. We don't react that way when we think about jury duty. We, we get it that it's our civic duty to serve on the jury. It's our civic duty to vote. In Australia, it's a minimal fine, not a lot. And to say that you have to vote doesn't actually mean you even have to complete the ballot. So you can actually, you can submit an empty ballot. You can still withhold your vote if you want to, but you do have to participate in the process, just like with jury duty. I believe we should pursue this because it would leapfrog over this whole fight about voter suppression. Because then the job would just be, okay, it's everybody's voter duty. How do we get all those voters to complete their duty um, rather than the fight that we're having? And I think people have to take sides on the universal suffrage point. Are you for everybody having the vote or not? Um, And my hope is that we can keep the people in the not column to the smallest possible number and rebuild that collective commitment in our country to universal suffrage. Greece also
4: has compulsory voting, although it's not enforced, but growing up, you know, that it was known and you'd have to have an excuse for why you wouldn't vote. Um, you know,
5: birthplace of democracy. So exactly. A good authority there.
4: Danielle, um, I know you had to leave at 10. If you need to leave, what we do is you just wave off and, and okay. uh, Keith will, I don't know. If Thank anybody you.
5: Lots of fun. I do have a student um, I need to visit with now. So but it was a real pleasure and really nice to meet you all. So.
2: Danielle, please thank come you, back. you for being with us. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, and okay. please come back. I, you know, I'd really love to continue this conversation. And I would Frank,
5: love
2: to. Frank and Pete, if we can have a part two of this, I think that would be extremely uh, you know, impressive and important. Danielle, we are all you. over it.
5: <laughs> I would love to. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye, Danielle. Bye-bye.
1: What I would uh, like to bring up now is that the Declaration of Independence is a statement of why we should leave and change from the British government to be an independent state. Uh, the de- is the Declaration now of Independence being spoken by the Republican Party? What are their grievances? And and are we at a point that people want to leave the uh, the American democracy and have a different government? And Jefferson, one of his famous statements is that you know, on occasion, uh, government needs to be changed and and revived again. So are we moving, uh, are are right-wing Republicans really using the Declaration of Independence to move toward a different form of government?
0: Uh, I'm going to jump in with uh, my profound insight, if you will, (laughs) good or bad. Uh, I believe that they believe they are. I believe that they believe that to be the case, but I would contend that they have been manipulated. Having played the role of manipulator in the past, as I have as a person of media skill, uh, I can tell you that this has been going on for a long time. Uh, It's not that difficult to get people to be angry. Um, And so now comes the question, are they angry for righteous reason? Um, Getting back to my other comment about agency, uh, have they been uh, directed in some herd mentality towards an outcome that doesn't necessarily benefit them, but benefits others? Um, And without it sounding like a conspiracy, I understand how the Republican Party has sought to garner votes, sought to garner um, a sufficient amount of energy within the population to be able to compete against uh, Democrats. Um, and some of those means have not necessarily been um, forthcoming.
1: Danielle, is- in her book, highlights the use of words mm-hmm. and how important language and words are. Newt Cambridge started this r- role of the use of negative words against his opponent, derogatory detog- words against his opponent. It seems that civil conversation, civil respect, uh, civil conversation seem to be the more dangerous thing that we no longer have.
0: Well, yeah, the use of derogatory uh, language is an interesting one. Um, And I saw the rise of that all through the 80s. Um, Part of the reason why I became sort of disenchanted with the idea of of working in political media. Um, And um, so on the one hand, the struggle is as a practitioner, I believed in and still do believe in zealous advocacy, that is, if I am helping someone to achieve an office, I owe them zealous advocacy to do all I can to, to make that work. But just like a good attorney, an attorney knows that as an officer of the court, they can't lie. So applying those same principles, I wouldn't do the same thing either. Um, but there's a point where spin goes beyond spin. Uh, And I think that's really what we've been witnessing in these past couple of decades. It isn't any, it is no longer just spin. It isn't a case of bending facts to some credible degree to your favor. It's about now we create alternative facts wantonly with abandon.
3: civility in government is something that I ran on when I first ran for the Office of State Representative in 2012. Um, it was something that was vitally important to me and something that I uh, have tried to strive and stay on the, on the civil path throughout my career in the legislature. Um, and it's so disappointing to me to see the level of rancor and anger and derogatory language that is out there um, used. Uh, in, in campaigns. And uh, I try to stay above it. And it is incredibly difficult, uh, um, especially when you have uh, social media outlets that will let people say anything. There are no boundaries whatsoever. Uh, the boundaries are beginning to come. And I think we talked about this several weeks ago. The boundaries, the boundaries are, are starting to take hold but it's, uh, you know, it's a very dangerous path. But I, I will share with you this one uh, piece that was uh, a Globe opinion piece uh, in the paper today from uh, Congressman Seth Moulton. And the, uh, I'll read to you the headline and, and uh, you know, ask you to take a peek at it. And it's, The headline is, until you stand against extremism, don't lecture me on patriotism or national security. And he talks specifically about uh, one protester's burning of the flag so angering the uh, folks in the Republican Party that they wanted to preach about patriotism. But uh, when the Capitol riot and in, in that movement uh, has taken place, uh, we're hearing crickets. Exactly, and uh, you know that leads to what uh, what Frank was talking about. This uh, are we on a path uh, to division? I mean, look at we had a civil war in this nation uh, in in eighteen sixty five, uh, so we're not immune to it. Um, I don't think we're on that pathway today. I think uh, I think there was a reckoning uh, on November sixth of twenty twenty, and. Um, I was deeply moved by what I saw on January 20th, and I know that I'm not alone. And uh, I still have those words of Amanda Gorman reading that incredible uh, poem at the inaugural. And uh, I see a shift. Uh, it's going to take some time to bring people uh, and get them on the boat, but uh, I'm the eternal optimist on that.
2: I wish I could share that optimism, uh, Jeff, but I guess my context is a little larger. Uh, I go back to 1865 at the end of the Civil War, and uh, genetically and historically, you know, I have roots with the regard to those people who came out of slavery uh, and into a newfound freedom and who were well uh, positioned to become a integral part of the fabric, both the economic and political fabric of this country. And yet, from 1865 to 1870, when those newly freed slaves uh, found a huge opportunity in terms of entrepreneurship, uh, in terms of education, in terms of the ability to move around this country, by 1870, the system, again, started to recalibrate itself. Between 1870 and 1875, the recalibration was to crush those individuals who were challenging both the economic and political structure uh, that those who did not want them to uh, see them succeed uh, uh, were then emboldened under uh, a new presidency, under a new structure in the South called Jim Crow, under a new terrorism by all of the white supremacist groups. And I guess my optimism uh, is lost, uh, Jeff, because the group that we're talking about in those years, between 1865 and 1875, were Democrats, not Republicans. I don't think the labels are important here. I think, Jeff, you've hit on something, and all of us, I think, continue to struggle with this, that it really is the system and the whole idea that the system, every time someone or a group starts to move in a direction of upliftment, the system recalibrates itself in order to put that uh, political or economic uh, uh, upbringing down again. And albeit, I think that we are in the pros, uh, I mean, in the, uh, right in the middle of what is undoubtedly an upheaval. I'm not seeing that this is going to end us up any place different than the constant recycling of everything that has happened since the Civil War. So please, uh, folks, help me out here, because without the real, I think what, uh, uh, what uh, Danielle was speaking of, without this real political uh, sort of empowerment of all people, we're not going to reach that, uh, you know, that more better or perfect state in terms of everyone participating in an equal system with appropriate and I think equal outcomes.
4: And Michael, there's this sort of quote that people say that when you're accustomed to privilege, equality can feel like oppression. I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but it's kind of true. Like you have to, you have to step back. And that means stepping back from the privilege. And, you know, I saw Canada yesterday declared the proud boys, a terrorist organization. Like we have to address obviously the extremes and white nationalism, but even the day-to-day being used to, you know, getting a job through your network and maybe now you won't. And, and it is, you know, it's not to undermine it, but to be explicit that that is how, yes, this is how you feel, but that's because you have had this privilege and you can't push back against it if you actually want, Um, you know, and and we see that in, in many areas in public education with white parents sort of leaving when they feel like, you know, it's not meeting their kid's need. Like we can talk about equality, but when it comes to like our kid, our family, we often act in different ways. And it's, we should be honest about that, I think.
3: Well, I'll, I'll, you know, I've heard the quote, I've seen it everywhere, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That's where I derive my optimism. Um, you know, the, just the very fact that we can sit around today and have a conversation like this and question our ability to reach that. Uh, moral universe is 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 key, but you know um, I I think we're going to get there. I feel we're going to get there, and uh, you know I want to do my part to um, get us on that path. I know that everyone here is committed to that, and the you know the more we the more we commit to that. Um, I, I, the better I feel. And I think we've come a long way in 240 years. I think we still have a long way to go. But, uh, you know, it's an evolving, it's, a, it's an unfinished pyramid, as is demonstrated on our national seal. Um, and it's our job to continue to pile on the bricks. And, um, you know, it's, it's not going to happen tomorrow, um, may not be in our lifetimes but I think we will indeed uh, get there. I'd like to uh, throw out to the group uh, besides uh,
2: Frank, the piece that you brought up from Di- uh, her book, uh, two other pieces that sort of uh, help embolden my particular point. And and, it's, and these are two reference points, as a matter of fact, for me with regard to the system recalibrating. One is uh, America who really pays the taxes by Bartlett and Steele uh that book uh, has uh, been in print since the 1990s it is still relevant and i think there is now a new companion book for that one called evil geniuses and those two books deal primarily with the economic structure and the inequality of how that economic structure of our country keeps recalibrating every time someone gets to a point uh whether it's the middle class whether it's people of color whether it's our uh indigenous populations. Every time they get to a place of prominence, the system recalibrates and crushes them. Um, and maybe at some point, uh, in our future shows, we can deal with how that structurally happens.
3: I think I have uh, proposed for a future show that we do something on, um, something as a local as the police reform legislation, because, I think that's a conversation we really need to have because in our local community, um, what I saw and what I heard was troubling to say the least. Uh, I'm happy that uh, I came out of this successfully at the polls. uh, And I was very much pleased with the margin because it told me that a great majority of my uh, constituents and and people I share Earth with do not have that belief. Um, so I took some optimism away from uh, from that, but I still saw these things happen. I heard the words, and I think uh, it's it's incumbent upon us to uh, talk deeply about it. And I look forward to doing that in an upcoming show.
6: Yeah, I certainly endorse that and picking back up on what was mentioned earlier in terms of words matter. Absolutely. And definition and scope around the use of the words because the English language just by its nature allows multiple meanings for words and content in context always is important as well. Um, and particularly around the police reform, Th- the blue line, for example, and the flag recoloring to tile the blue line, et cetera, that started out in a nice way to recognize, but then has become, if you will, twisted um, with some of the right and uh, Republican to go that way, if you will. And I think it's coercing, uh, you know, it, another tack to take, you know, if we had asked the question, What would make America great again? Let's phrase it now. And then to pick up on the local point, Franklin is coming up on its 250th anniversary in 2028. What does Franklin want to be in 2028? And that gives us kind of the local way to facilitate, hopefully in a civil discourse, some of these major issues, equality, access agency topics that you've addressed topics that we'll still need to address you know kind of in a local pointed fashion if you will this is us what are we going to be how are we going to do this um and i certainly want to dodge that because that's what i've been trying to do in my role is to bring at least timely accurate <laughs> information to foster these discussions and it's, it's rather difficult um, from time to time, particularly with some of the social media tools. I'll pick back up onto that in terms of the tools don't necessarily facilitate or enhance a proper discussion, but it's also incumbent upon some of the admins of those tools within the individual group structure, for example, um, as simple as a, you know, a language filter. You can't use abusive language when you go to the Franklin Matters Facebook page. If you put any swear words in there, your comment is totally blocked. So people over time learn, and there are different conversations on some pages than on other pages. Without naming where those are, you all know where those are, because those are conversations that it's like, really? We're having those? Well, some of us are.
1: Jeff, uh, Jeff, you mentioned filing a bill for the fourth time. I hope for the fourth time you filed a bill to have restrooms on four ninety five, ninety five, one ninety five, three ninety five. I mean, I hope that bill has as high a preference as the one you mentioned.
3: Of course, it does, Frank. I, you know, uh, it's funny. Is uh, I actually did speak to the uh, secretary of uh, economic development to, um, you know. I, I viewed that, it, although it's a transportation issue. Um, no, it falls under the committee
1: of tourism. Right, but I'm saying. It falls <laughs> under the committee of tourism.
3: Right, but I, you know, it's it's a transportation issue because it's on a highway. It's a tourism uh, issue because it, uh, it takes care of people who are on the roads coming to our great uh, cultural uh, events, but. It's an economic development issue at the end of the day, because uh, if we don't make this place hospitable, um, no one's going to come. And, uh, you know, trust me, I take that matter seriously. And uh, I want you to be able to go long distances and be able to uh, get that relief that you need.
1: I can't go long distances in Massachusetts (laughs) without stopping by the edge of the road. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, you know, I,
2: uh, I would, uh, concur and endorse that as, of fact, as soon as possible with regard to the idea that we deal with the, uh, uh, Jeff, the, you know, you know, the police reform bill, because I, you know, that's actually a great example of what I was trying to describe where the system recalibrates and hopefully this time, this time, and maybe, That would spark a rejuvenation of my optimism on your, uh, you know, as you see it, uh, Jeff. That if we can get some of those reforms in place, then maybe the system can uh, make some adjustments this time in favor of the population rather than opposed to the population and to
3: the general welfare. I was speaking with uh, the chair of the judiciary committee and the speaker of the house about that uh, bill in particular, and I and I said, you know, it was a very difficult uh, time period for me personally, um, from I would say June uh, to January, so June of 2020 to January of 2021, when the governor finally signed the bill. But my thought was, they said, you know, I think when history looks back it'll look kindly upon what we did and it will be seen as, uh, some of the most important work that we've done because we took a horrific moment in our history, talked to one another, worked with one another, listened to one another and did something about it. And, uh, that, again, fuels my optimism. Well, I think it's, it's, it's
2: rather important to, to make sure that uh, when we look at, Jeff, reforms, uh, I mean, I think back to those years when education reform was the uh, sort of the, uh, the subject of the day and going back to the 70s and the 80s when teachers were blamed for, and I was one of that group, uh, teachers were blamed for everything. And then our unions were blamed for being the obstructionists. And I can feel and empathize with many of, uh, the police and public service folks who now feel as though they are the ones who are sort of being put on the, on the sacrificial block, uh, when it's not all police, uh, uh, but the reform is necessary because the structure and the processes that they use are not appropriate, I believe, for uh, for our society, and neither are they equipped to do all of the things that we have put on their shoulders. Uh, so much of the reform not only is needed in order to help us as people, uh, but I also, Jeff, you know, when I was watching all of these pieces of legislation, come up all across the country in terms of, uh, public service and police reform. I kept thinking back to, uh, my days and going, uh, as a young person in Louisville, Kentucky. And the first time somebody, uh, one of the police, uh, pulled the gun on me, uh, and I was 14 years old when that happened. And I was standing on a street. I can tell you exactly the corner. It was, uh, the corner of third, uh, and, uh, third, <laughs> Uh, third and Winkler uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and the policeman pulled the gun on me because I would not adhere to moving along on a public sidewalk uh, on Derby Day, which has its own kind of story behind it. And he pulled the gun on me and my cousin, who at the time was uh, 16 years, uh, yeah, 16 years old. Uh, and it's a frightening kind of thing. And The other piece, too, around that, Jeff, is that people of color in this country have hundreds of stories like that that have gone unchallenged uh, in terms of the police being held accountable for those things. And here it is. I'm now 71 years old, and now the reforms are starting to happen. You, you know, uh, again, that's why I guess I don't share this sort of immediate optimism, but I must admit, long range, the possibilities are there. And that's why I think, uh, again, we need to, as a country, look toward the ideals of what were uh, the words that this country were founded on, not necessarily the actions upon what uh, our founders actually undertook. Uh, But we have evolved. And that's, uh, again, I think, to our credit that we have evolved. Uh, And I would hate to see us go backwards in that regard. And I think, uh, uh, you know, Natalia, uh, you know, you you may have some ideas and some thoughts and some observations about that as well.
4: I mean, I think that what you just said at the end, that Let's not go backwards. Like that, that is a reality. That not progress doesn't always happen linearly. Like we're not always evolving, and that that is a real risk. Uh, we see it on you know globally and the global scale. Um, you know, taking away environmental protections or reproductive rights of women. You know, there is a lot where we can go backwards, and then we have to fight to go forwards again. And so, not assuming, not being complacent that we're constantly evolving towards the better is is one message. And I'd love to have the conversation on the the policing. Uh, You know, I I live in Brookline and we're having that conversation here around sort of reimagining public safety and what that means. And, And it's difficult to have the conversation at the local level because people are like, I know this police officer, this name, this is a good person. And we have to get away from individuals that we care about who might be our brother, our friend and think about the system and look at the big picture and and failures of the system and that's difficult to do when you're at the very local level but you know i always take us a step back to like the national because it's easy to look at data on say you know black men being at much much higher risk of of dying at the hands of the police that's you know for sure and the fact that you michael have experienced a gun being pulled out i mean i would guess that nobody else on this call has um and that is because of you know of of a systemic issue as well as that individual police officer. It's not, you know, I, I, it's both. And so we need to be able to, to have those conversations. And I am sort of in the, between the two of you, I'm more optimistic um, sort of like Jeff, that we are seeing progress, but I know that there will be obstacles and some of the obstacles will require real conversations, real listening. And, and this is why I appreciate, you know, this, this group, I appreciate bringing in guests of different political viewpoints. And I think that's part of it. Um, And I am hopeful. I am hopeful that in my lifetime, we will see more progress. So
1: with that, I think it's a good opportunity for us to wrap it up, Frank. Um, Thank you all. Uh, And I want to thank the listener for tuning in. This is 102.9 FM. We look forward to you for tuning in next week.
0: And if you have an opinion that you'd like to share with us by email, you can write us at info, I-N-F-O, at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O, at franklin.tv. I'm Peter J with Frank Falvey, Natalie Alinos, Michael Walker-Jones, and of course, Representative Jeff Roy, and along with us today, riding sidecar Steve Sherlock. Thanks for joining us, Steve. And until we meet again, we are all moving inexorably
3: toward a more perfect union. This. is Franklin Public Radio.